One of the questions, first questions, though, that we got, you got kind of primed ahead of time just uh, like 10 minutes ago. Do you want to ask that one? Okay, it says, how do you engage in a faith conversation with someone who thinks that the Christian faith and the Bible have no scientific merit? Yeah. You tell them they're dumb and you run away. That is not correct. No, you don't. No. So here's the thing, guys. This is where the the field of apologetics comes in handy. Um, And it comes in handy for this. It comes in handy as an on-ramp to the gospel. No one has ever been saved by being convinced that the world had a beginning. No one has ever been saved by being convinced that the Big Bang was wrong or that evolution is wrong. No one has ever been saved by these things. They're only saved by the gospel. So the most important thing is for us to get to the gospel. Now, if somebody has these, these, these obstacles, these blockades up between you and the gospel, and they are these apologetic issues, like does the Bible have any scientific merit? Well, then we as, as faithful Christians, like Peter says, we need to be ready to give a hope for the defense or a defense for the hope within us. We need to be able to engage these subjects, talk about them in a way that is, is logical and intelligent and get the ball towards the end zone, which is the gospel. So let's, let's talk about that. Let's, let's talk about the Bible. Let's talk about the New Testament, for example. Let's talk about its reliability, right? My guess is when y'all were in high school, you were taught about Homer and you were taught about even maybe Herodotus and Caesar's Gaelic Wars and some of these other works, Plato, uh, Demosthenes, any of those ringing a bell with any of you out there? Okay. Now, how many of your teachers set about to disprove the, the veracity of those writings? Yeah, none of them. Here's what we can do. We can look at what's called manuscript evidence, right? So for our New Testament, for the the Bible, we have in existence over 5,000 different manuscripts for the New Testament. Now, does that mean every single one of those manuscripts is the entirety of the New Testament? No, it doesn't. But we have the entirety of the New Testament represented in those manuscripts, over 5,000 manuscripts. In fact, over 5,500 manuscripts. And that number is growing right now. If you go to, let's just take, not Plato, let's take uh, Homer, for instance, the Odyssey and the Iliad. You guys remember reading those at all? Okay, the Iliad. That, for a while, people were arguing, well, it has, you know, 643 manuscripts. Okay, they've updated that number to 1,800. So 1,800 manuscripts for Homer's works, and here you've got the Bible with 5,500 for the New Testament. All right, let's keep going. How about Plato? How many in the room are familiar with Plato? Okay. Here, here's the deal. Plato wrote seven tracts or, or tetralogies is what they were called, right? So as of right now, the oldest surviving manuscript was copied by John the calligrapher in 895, leaving the gap unchanged, right? So there's a, a massive gap between when that was written, second century BC and 895 AD. And, and that's the oldest manuscript. Guys, we have New Testament manuscripts that are now, they're, they're getting close to within a hundred years of the original writing of of the New Testament. So if you want to argue for the veracity of the, the Bible based on manuscript evidence, we can go there. We can talk about, let's get scientific and talk about how we can know these things, right? And we can talk about textual criticism and how you compare the manuscripts together to get what we have in the New Testament and how we can trust that what we have in the New Testament was what was originally written by the New Testament authors. Well, you say, well, what about the Old Testament? How many of y'all have heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls? Okay, those some of those date back to 130 to 150 BC, right? Before Christ. So prior to their discovery, the closest Old Testament manuscript that we had dated back to about 900 to 1000 AD, okay? 
So we're talking about a thousand year gap. Well, guess what? They took the Dead Sea Scrolls, which contains almost the entirety of the Old Testament and that other copy that we had that was uh, about a thousand years newer than the Dead Sea Scrolls, and they compared them, and guess what they found? They were a match. In other words, that what what they had in the second century BC is what we had in the first century AD, that it had been unchanged. Why? Because it was the same manuscript. Do we have any of the originals? No, we don't, but we have those. We move on to to just talking about some of the content of the Bible, right? Let's talk about the existence of God. Can we prove the existence of God? Yes. How can we prove the existence of God? Well, there's two different camps. There's the presuppositionalist approach, which is going to argue that like the, the author of Ecclesiastes said, that man has an eternity uh, written in his heart, right? That, that man is just after knowledge about God, that there's an inherent desire to know God. We can go there. Francis Schaeffer is one of the key uh, presuppositionalist argument, argue, uh, apologists out there. Uh, but then you can also take the evidentiary side, which is more of what like Sean and Josh McDowell do. Let's talk about the evidentiary side for a second. There's a, an acronym called SURGE that has to do with the cosmological argument for the existence of God. In other words, that the universe had a beginning. Because if the universe had a beginning, then it must have had what? A beginner, right? A cause, a beginner. And so with the cosmological argument, which, which deals with this acronym called SURGE, here's what it does. Number one, it looks at the second law of thermodynamics, okay? Second law of thermodynamics says that something that has a a certain given amount of energy is going to what? Run out of energy over time. You put a flashlight on the ground on a path, you turn it on, you leave it on, you walk away, somebody else comes up and finds that flashlight and that flashlight is still on, they're gonna assume what? That you must have dropped it recently, right? Why do they imagine that? Because the battery is still functioning and people know that a battery runs out of energy. Well, as we look at the energy in the universe, the energy in the universe is decreasing, which science, because we're, we're dealing in the realm of science right now, right? Science would, apply, would argue implies that the universe had a beginning, right? And that it couldn't be an infinite amount of time old because if, the, if we're losing energy, then eventually our scientists can project out when they think that the universe will run out of energy. That would imply that what? The universe had a beginning. How about you? The universe is expanding. S-U-R-G-E. The universe is expanding. When Hubble, you guys know the Hubble telescope, right? When Hubble first looked through his telescope at the, the universe and the outer reaches of the universe, he expected to see that the universe was collapsing in on itself, right? That it would have been a blue tilt. But instead, what he saw is that the universe actually had a red tilt, the red light to the, to the universe, which meant that the universe is expanding out. Well, what, what does that imply except that the universe must have, if we hit rewind on the tape, had a single point of origin, right? Or a beginning, R and G, he gets into the the radiation afterglow from the the cosmic explosion that started everything. G is the galaxy seeds, the variation in temperature that led to the the creation of matter and not everything collapsing back in on itself. And then Einstein's theory of relativity, which um, he called his greatest blunder ever because he didn't like what he found because Einstein wanted to find an infinite universe, an eternal universe, and he didn't. So here's what he did. He took his findings and he divided by what? Zero. Now, you guys who are math wizards out here know that you're never supposed to what? Divide by zero. Einstein did it to avoid seeing that the universe had a beginning because he didn't want to admit that there could have been a creator. So when somebody throws out a long answer to this question that the Bible doesn't have scientific proof, it's a facade. It's a front that they're putting up there. Your job is not to defeat them, but your job is to engage them knowledgeably so that you can get to the gospel. 
Because you can go through all that stuff and you can get them to the point of saying, yes, fine, the universe had a beginning. But if they walk away and that's the end of your conversation, then they're still walking away destined for hell and not heaven. You've got to get to the gospel. But if you can get to the gospel by engaging at this level, don't be afraid to engage at this level. God's not afraid of science and you shouldn't be afraid of science. God is the one that created the world and created science within the world as well. There's been a yeah. questions that have come in. Other questions come in. Awesome. You can also flag down Matt if, if you want to, if you want the spotlight for a little bit, flag down Matt and you can ask your question in person too. Okay. Just to do um, a short one, uh, how do predestination and free will work together? <laughs> also, our babysitter would like to know if the kids can have ha- candy. Um, I don't know. Did God predestine that they can have candy? I'll leave it up to the babysitter. Here's the deal, guys. The, the Bible teaches two things, and there are two things that we see as conflicting, but there are two things that the Bible holds in perfect tension with one another, and that is this, that God is 100% sovereign and man is 100% responsible. Um, do we have free will? From our perspective, yes, but do the choices that we make change or alter anything about God's sovereign plan? No. Okay, so God's sovereign plan is set in stone. He has declared the beginning from the end and he knows the beginning from the end and he is working out his sovereign plan throughout all of human history. So in essence, do we have free will to decide daily whether or not we're gonna obey Christ or disobey him, whether we're gonna sin or not sin? Yes, but do I have the free will to affect change in God's plan? The answer to that question is no. Uh, did I have the free will to choose Jesus or not to choose Jesus? Well, Romans 9 would tell me no. Romans 9 would tell me that that decision was made by God in eternity past, that he's prepared vessels for glory and vessels for destruction, that he has chosen some but not chosen everyone. And we want to point the finger at God and say that that's unjust and that's unfair. And if that's where you're at tonight, I would really encourage you to spend some time in Romans 9 and and read the argument because Paul anticipates every single one of our objections in Romans 9. The objection that says, well, that's not fair. Paul says, you're going to say to me, then that's unjust on God's part. Well, you can read Paul's response to that. And then you're going to argue, well, then how can he still hold people guilty? Paul says, hey, you're going to ask me, how can he still hold people guilty? And he answers that question. Romans 9 is such a good text on that. So Are you puppets on strings? No, you're not. You have a decision daily whether or not you're going to obey God or disobey God, to believe him, to not believe his promises, to follow him, to not follow him. But do those decisions change any of the outcome of his sovereignly predestined and ordained plan? No, they don't. Uh, You were saved because God saved you, because God initiated that, because God chose you in eternity past, as we read about in Ephesians 1, 4, and 5. So how do they work together Uh, There's a point at which that's above our pay grade, Um, what the actual outworking of that looks like and how that that happens. Uh, But the Bible does teach that I am 100% responsible for the decisions and choices I make, and yet God is 100% sovereign over those decisions and choices. Yeah, I'm sure we're going to have follow-up questions to that. Can you clarify how prayer fits into whole discussion. Yeah, God works out his plan through answering our prayers, and he has sovereignly ordained that we would pray, and he would respond to our prayers in the outworking and unfolding of his plan. Um, 
It's the same way evangelism works into that, right? People want to say, well, you believe in God's sovereignty over salvation, so why bother evangelizing? Well, because Romans 10 tells me that the way that people are saved is by hearing the gospel. And how are they going to hear unless somebody is sent or unless somebody preaches it? And how are they going to preach unless they are sent? So God's sovereign plan means that he's going to use somebody just like he used somebody in your life if you're a Christian who is the, the person that, that spoke the gospel to you for the first time or maybe the hundredth time. And, and then at that point, God removed the veil, opened your eyes, and you were saved. Well, his using that person was always part of his plan. And it's the same thing with prayer. God wants us to pray because it's, number one, a relational side of things between us and God. But number two, he also wants us to pray because God has sovereignly ordained our prayers to be the means through which he accomplishes his purposes. Okay, and maybe further on that, the idea of praying about decision-making and which options are before you if God has already sovereignly set out the plan for your life. Right. Where does prayer factor into making a decision? Right. And you're going to pray, and you're going to say, God, I've got these two choices in front of me. I've got this guy who loves Jesus and this guy who loves Jesus, and they both proposed to me last night, and I don't know what to do. Well, you probably shouldn't have been in a relationship with both of them to begin with. That led to them both proposing to you. No, let's use college. I've got two colleges that I am considering. Neither are a bad option. Neither would be sinful for me. God, I'm praying that you'd make it clear which one I should attend. You're going to also do things. What are you going to do? You're going to talk to people, right? You're going to talk to your small group leader. You're going to talk to your pastor. You're going to talk to friends. You're going to talk to your family. You're going to get their input, right? Proverbs says there's, an, uh, there's wisdom in an abundance of counselors. And God is going to be answering your prayer for clarity through using all of those people as well in your life and how they are instructing you. At the end of the day, if you're still sitting there going, man, it still feels like a toss-up for me, you're going to make a choice. And the choice that you make, this is where you have the confidence to walk forward in that choice, knowing that that's the choice that God has for your life. And that's, that is his sovereign plan for your life. And that is the answer for you. You're not going to have the, the angelic halo fall over one choice over the other because that's not how it works, right? We go back to Gideon's fleece and we talk about that. That was sinful on Gideon's part. That was a lack of faith by Gideon. That wasn't something that was good for Gideon, and especially not the second time around to go, okay, God, well, you did it the first time, but now let's reverse the process and do that, right? God was gracious and merciful to Gideon in, in, do, in answering his prayer there, but it's, it's about stepping out and walking in faith. You're going to decide what you're going to decide, and, and that is part of God's sovereign plan. Even if you make the wrong decision, right? Even if you make a, a decision that is driven by sinful motives and sinful desires, that's, you're, you're still part of God's sovereign plan. God's not up in heaven going, wait, what are you doing? Why did you do that? Oh, Jesus, Holy Spirit, get over here. We got to figure something out because look what they just did. No, he, he knows. He's laid it all out. He knows exactly what we're going to do and what decisions we're going to make. Question in the back. Uh-oh. Uh, no. Cheater, you're on staff. No, what are some practical conversation starters or questions, whether we're trying to evangelize to a family member or a, a someone we're sitting with at school or a coworker, um, some good times or questions to ask to get yeah. into that. Yeah. I, I, you know, family member is different because I'm assuming that you've spent time with them in the past and you've kind of had, so it would be awkward to be like, hey, so do you go to church? They'd be like, dude, you, you know me. No, I don't go to church. Um, so let me start with the other one, then I'll come back to that. If it's a coworker, if it's somebody at school, if it's somebody that you've just met, that is a great starter. Hey, have you ever gone to church before? No, I've never gone to church before. Well, why not? I don't know. I just didn't never grow, grow up going to church. Have you ever considered go, going to church? No. Well, what do you think about church? Like, what do you think church is like? Talking to them about things like that. Like, when we go out onto college campuses, when we used to do that, 
that was a great starter question for things like, uh, like Saddleback and UCI and IVC just to get into those conversations. Sometimes they'll say something like, well, I used to go to church. I don't anymore. Oh, really? Why? Well, tell me about why did you used to go? Well, my parents used to bring me. But you don't go anymore? No, not since I left home. Well, have you ever thought about going back? Why did you leave? I mean, these are good questions to kind of get them talking just kind of casually. And you can find out where they're at in their kind of concept of, because they're going to answer it in a certain way. Well, I just, I don't know, the whole existence of God thing, I don't really know that he exists anymore or I had a bad experience or whatever that may be. So that's a a great question that I go to a lot is what, what about church? Family member, it can be you can even ask that question. Hey, I know that you don't normally go to church, but have you ever thought about going to church? Or is there a reason why you don't? Um, I think a lot of time we look for these kind of bait and switch questions because we're afraid to, to go for the guttural too early. But I think if we are loving and, and non-threatening in the way that we ask these questions, like, hey, what do you think about God? What do you think about the church? Have you ever been to church? People aren't going to be like, you are such a bigot. I'm leaving this conversation. No, they'll talk to you. They'll, they'll engage with you in that. So I would say, don't make it harder than it needs to be. Um, you know, talk about the things that are going to lead to the gospel because that's your goal. Uh, hey, what's your favorite flavor of ice cream? Rocky Road? Oh, well, did you know that life can be like a rocky road? <laughs> Let me tell you about the one who can smooth it for you, like a rainbow sherbet. His, no, don't talk about rainbows in evangelism. His name is Jesus. Anyways. Okay, so as a follow-up question to that one, though, um, when you're dealing with your family members who would claim to be Christians, but from their life, it does not appear that they <clears throat> are, would you call them out on it, or do you um, just try to live your life in such a way that provides an example of the gospel? Or do you tell them they're not saved? Yeah. Here's the deal. Are, are you concerned about their eternal state? I mean, if you really genuinely, truly are concerned that they are self-deceived into thinking they're a believer when they're not a Christian and they are, like Jonathan Edwards pictured in Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, that spider dangling by a single thread over the flames of hell, I I would say, yeah, you need to have that conversation with them that says, look, I'm concerned because you are professing to be a believer, but these things that I'm, I'm seeing in your life, these decisions that you're making, these things that you talk about, I just, I'm concerned. I don't see... I don't see this matching up. And they may get angry with you and they may, you know, call you a legalist or, or holier than thou or whatever and shut you out. But man, I, Ezekiel is told by the Lord, look, you need to be a watchman and a watchman warns of the impending danger. And he goes so far as to say, look, if you don't warn of the impending danger, the blood of those that are killed in the attack is on you. And he says, but look, if you warn them and they still don't listen to you, they don't believe you, well, then their blood's on themselves, not on you. And I think we're so worried about offending people that we're the watchmen that are silent on the wall as the enemy is closing in. Um, I think we've got to have those hard conversations with them because otherwise, you know, you're going to step into eternity. It's, again, like Pastor Mike so often says, what's going to matter 100 years from now? And some awkwardness around the Thanksgiving table 100 years from now when we're dead, Lord willing, is, is not going to matter. But whether or not that person is in eternity with you or not in eternity with you, man, that's going to matter. That's going to matter for sure. So you got to be delicate. you got to be gentle with it. But if this is truly not just like a, hey, they go to a church and I don't necessarily line up with their doctrine over there. But if this, it, it, not that, but if this is more of like a, no, I'm, I'm really concerned that they're not saved, then I would say as, as a watchman for the Lord, we've got to say something. Hello? You're good. Okay. I hear you. Sorry. I got a, um, this is, this ties into like a historical 
gospel question, though. Okay. Um, so, um, not talking about science, though, so we'll leave that out. Um, Fair enough. So, in uh, the Old Testament, I've done, I've learned a lot about countries that were kind of uh, going against Israel, like, for instance, Egypt and Babylon and all that, and in the Old, in the Old Testament, it talks about how God is punishing them and about other things, and in the New Testament, it talks about the beginning point of the gospel being bringing out to other countries, though. Yep. So my question is, um, does God still want to punish them, or does he basically want them to basically uh, move, like, kind of like move on or receive the gospel, though? Y- yes. Okay. <laughs> yeah, no. Um, yeah, so Old Testament, you've got these nations, and even the book of Habakkuk, which... Uh, it's just a crazy, awesome book. I think True North is going through it right now. And the prophet at the beginning is like, God, Israel is wicked. Do something. God says, okay, I'm going to do something. Here comes Babylon, and Babylon's going to be my instrument. My Nebuchadnezzar is my servant of justice and punishment against Israel. And Habakkuk goes, whoa, 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 God, you can't do that. You're too holy to do that. And God says, Habakkuk, sit down, chill, wait for it, because they're going to be used as my instrument of justice, but then I'm going to come back and punish them too, right? So God uses them, he even uses Egypt with his people as a, a, a refining tool. He uses Babylon, he uses uh, Persia, um, he uses Syria. I mean, he uses all of these nations, but then he also judges the nations for their sins, right? We come into the New Testament, number one, Israel was always supposed to be a missional nation, and that was one of their greatest failures. They were always supposed to uh, spread the the knowledge of God, that, that was their goal, right? We go back to Genesis 12, 3 in the Abrahamic covenant, the, the outset. God calls Abraham and says, Abraham, look, and you will what? All the families of the earth be blessed. So from the outset, God wanted to bring blessing through the descendants of his people Israel to all the nations of the earth. That was always his plan. And Israel just didn't do a great job with that. They failed in that. And so you get to the New Testament, here comes Jesus on the scene, and Jesus initially is focused on Israel, right? You remember the story when the the Canaanite woman comes to Jesus and begs to be healed, and he says, depart from me because you're one of the Gentiles, I'm here for Israel. And she says, yes, Lord, but even the the crumbs, uh, the the dogs under the, the king's table get the crumbs. And Jesus commends her faith and says, man, I've never seen faith like this, even in all of Israel. And then there's this kind of shift And then Paul becomes the apostle to the Gentiles, to the nations, right? And the gospel begins to go forward, accomplishing God's plan. If we go all the way to the book of Revelation, here's what's going to happen. In Revelation 19, you've got the battle of Armageddon, right? Har Megiddo, Valley of Megiddo. You can go to Israel and you can stand there today. And all of the nations are going to be gathered together against Jesus and his saints that are, are coming back in Revelation 19. So there you have the nations again, but these are the nations now that have rejected Christ. These are the nations that have rejected God. These are the nations that have been deceived by the Antichrist and the false prophet. And they're all gathered. Every world leader is together at that point. And they're all holding hands singing Kumbaya with their buttons on the fingers on the nuke missile buttons aimed at Jesus at that point. Jesus comes back in Revelation 19 and it's not a battle. It's not a battle. It's carnage but it's carnage because Jesus just wins. He captures the beast and the false prophet, throws them alive into the lake of fire. Then it says he kills with the sword from his mouth, meaning he speaks and they die. All of the leaders, the kings, the mighty men, uh, the the riders and their horses, and and everybody else that had been gathered to watch the spectacle, they all die. And it says in Revelation 19 there, such that the blood would flow 184 miles in length up to the, the belly of a horse. Okay, so this is 
total carnage, Jesus against the nations. So you're like, wait a minute, gospel to the nations, Armageddon, what happens here? Well, those that are destroyed in Armageddon are those that have rejected God and rejected Christ. So does God want to punish those that have rejected his son and, and what his son did in the death? Yes, absolutely. But does God desire people to come to faith from the nations? Yes, absolutely. Will both happen? Yes, they both will happen. Because then in Revelation 21 and 22, especially in 22, we read about the fact that the, the, the glory of God is now here on earth, the new earth and the nations are coming into the new Jerusalem to bring their wealth, to bring their honor, to bring their offerings to God in, in worshiping him. So even in the new, new Jerusalem, the nations are present there. It's not just Israel at that point in time. Good question. Okay, so since you opened the door to the end time. Yes. Um, is there a second chance? Sounds ominous. Because this job is really stressful, can I just tell you? I'm going to try to get to all of your questions. I'm really trying. Uh, but is there a second chance for those who aren't raptured? Yeah, during the tribulation. There are tribulation saints um, during the seven years. So let me give you kind of a 30,000-foot view of, of end times. You've got the rapture that happens, right, where the church is, is taken up to be with the Lord. And then at, at, at that point and then onward, you have the seven-year tribulation period. The Bible calls it the time of Jacob's trouble. Jacob was the father of the 12 tribes of Israel, right? And that's another reason, that's one of the reasons why we believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. In other words, that the church is going to be caught up together with the Lord prior to the tribulation because the tribulation is referred to as the time of Jacob's trouble. This is a refining time where God is refining and purifying his people Israel because there's still a future for them. So rapture, seven-year tribulation period. During the seven-year tribulation period, who do you have on the scene? Well, you have the the Antichrist on the scene, and the Antichrist rises, and we think about even the rapture. The rapture is going to be chaotic, right? I mean, if you ever saw Kirk Cameron in the Left Behind movie, that's nothing like what it's going to be like. But it, it is, planes are going to be dropping out of the sky, cars are going to be getting in accidents, like Endgame. Yes, like Endgame. Yes, thank you for the assist on that. When everybody's gone, and then it's like, what's going on? Yes, totally threw me off. So yes, things are going to be chaotic, right? Imagine the scene. Well, one of the, the things, one of the characteristics about the Antichrist is he's going to bring world peace. This is going to be a, 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 a dynamic and charismatic ruler that's going to arise out of the chaos, and he's going to calm everything down. And he's even going to bring a peace treaty with Israel, at least on the surface. But then here's what's going to happen. Three and a half years into the tribulation, the seven-year period, the, the Antichrist is going to break the peace treaty with Israel. He's going to commit the abomination of desolation. A lot of people think that that in the rebuilt temple is going to be sacrificing a pig on the altar like it was with Antiochus Epiphanes. But this is not Antiochus. This is still in the future. So he's going to break the peace treaty with Israel. And then a great persecution is going to break out against Israel. But during this time, those that are... Man, I hate the book title because it's ruined this phrase. Those that are left behind, they are going to include those who thought they were saved but weren't saved. They're going to include those that have been to church, and there are also going to be Bibles that are left behind. So there are going to be people that are saved, and the, the rapture is going to be the catalyst for their salvation. And then there are going to be missionaries who go about and tell other people about what's going on during that period of time. Do you want to be in that period of time? No, and I wouldn't bank on that. I wouldn't be sitting there living your life how you want to live, going, well, hey, if the rapture happens tomorrow, there's a second chance. But there will be during that period of time. However, after that period of time is, is over, that's Revelation 19. That's what I just referenced, right? Those that are, are still there, that are standing against Christ, there is no second chance at that point, right? 
uh, probably a decade ago, this guy named Rob Bell wrote a book called Love Wins, where he basically took away this idea of eternal damnation. And he said, hell is this place where people who reject God go until God's love melts their heart. The problem with that is Bell has to deal with all of the teaching from Jesus and others that describe hell as a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth of eternal torment where the worm doesn't die and smoke goes up forever. Um, hell, Rob Bell has to deal with the lake of fire in Revelation 20 and 19. Uh, hell is a very real place, so we can't flirt with that. There's a second chance during the tribulation, but after the tribulation is over, there is no second chance at, at that point in time. Okay, I'm going to try and put a couple questions together. Okay. Um, for those who really struggle with assurance of their salvation yeah. and really would love for there to just be like a sign or something physical. Like that an happens. I voted sticker that's like, I believe. Yes. Um, yeah, something awesome. like that to give you that assurance to hold on to. Yeah. Um, how would you encourage them or maybe implore them? And then, you know, coming out of our series in Galatians, what, yeah. where, do, where does fruit fit into that conversation? Right. Nobody, there's no perfect person, right? We all understand that. There's no person who only bears good fruit and never bears the fruit of the flesh. Um, and yet we balance that, as I've preached on in Galatians recently, where in, in, in that series, but Paul says it in Corinthians, where we're encouraged and exhorted to examine ourselves to see whether or not we're in the faith. So, if you've got this level of uncertainty, I think we start with the gospel. And I think it begins with, what is the gospel? And I would encourage whoever these people are, and, and I assume it's multiple since these are multiple questions that have been submitted, to even sit down with just a, a piece of paper and a pen and write the gospel down. Just write it down so you can get back to what are the basics. Let's strip everything else away. What is the basics of what is the gospel? Um, by the way, Greg Gilbert has a good book on that, as well as our own Pastor Mike has a good book on that um, called Getting It Right. Um, Greg Gilbert's book, I think, is called What is the Gospel? Uh, I mean, these are helpful resources to go back to on that. But just write it down, because that's, that's what saves you. It's the gospel. The gospel saves you. Faith alone through Christ alone, right? By grace alone. From there, what does my life look like? Well, my life should be this trajectory towards godliness. It's called sanctification, in the scriptures, where we become more like Jesus and less like the world. Is that a linear, static path up? No, it's not. It's not for any of us, myself included, right? It's a path that is undulating, meaning you're going to have times where you're struggling, where you're battling, right? And it, but, but that's just it. You're, you're battling. What salvation does for us, if I go back to Romans 6, is it frees us from sin, right? Paul's very clear there. I'm no longer a slave to sin because I've been united to Christ's death. So now I'm free in Christ. So if that's true, then when I look at my life, I shouldn't see there be any sin in my life that just flat out owns me. There may be a sin that is a recurring battle for me, and this is, my, this is an area that I struggle with that maybe you don't struggle with, but I'm fighting. I'm battling. I'm bringing other believers into that. I've got accountability with others. I'm, I'm going to work to try to mortify that, right? As Paul says in Romans 8, that we need to put to death the deeds of the, of the body by the spirit, the deeds of the flesh by the spirit. So I, I guess it would be to kind of look at your life and say, okay, number one, am I owned by anything? Um, 
Number two, is there this pattern that I can see where, yeah, I'm a different person than I was five years ago. And I, I can see that I'm, I've grown in my knowledge of who Jesus is and who God is. I, I, I have grown in my love for God and love for Christ. And I, I certainly have a difference about me than I did then. Um, am I perfect? No, not by a long shot. But I certainly see that there's been this trajectory towards godliness, towards sanctification, towards growth in Christ-likeness. Again, not even a linear static line that's going straight up with no undulations. It's going to have your undulations, but um, it's, it's not this, and it's certainly not that, if that makes sense. Yeah, you can ask follow-up questions to that if, if that sparks okay. any. But not too fast, because, yeah, we might not get to it. Um, Romans 7.25. Oh, boy. Where Paul is talking about battling the flesh. Is this unrepentant Paul speaking, or is it a converted Paul? Lewis, was this you? Where are you, Lewis? <laughs> yeah, there's back and forth. Let me, let me answer this this way. I'm not going to do you a favor whoever asked this question. I think those of you that want to see this as, un, as, as repentant Paul, as a Christian Paul, I think we can see the principle at work other places, right? Uh, let me go to the next chapter in Romans 8. Romans 8, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their mind on the things of the spirit. For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it can't. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus Christ from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So what Paul is setting up there is this, this existence in the, the battle between the flesh and the spirit. We go to Galatians 5 even, right? What we've been in this series. We can see that there is a battle in believers between the flesh and the spirit, right? That the flesh is set against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. So those that want to see Romans 7 as this is Paul who is a believer because they want to go, look, it's natural for a believer to struggle with sin. We can make that point other places, right? But what we see in Paul and some of the difficulty in Paul is just his, the, the descriptions there in Romans 7 almost point to, like I said before, that he is owned by his sin, right? I don't do the things I want to do. I do the very thing that I hate. And that's, that's almost a, a, an enslavement to it. So um, yeah, it's, it's a, a debated text. And there are those that will teach that this is regenerate Paul. This is saved Paul. There are those that will teach that this is unsaved Paul. But my guess is the person who asked this question, I, and I don't know who asked this question, but my guess is you, like a lot of people, struggle with a, a battle between the flesh and the spirit. And Romans 7 has always been comforting for you because you look at Paul and go, well, Paul battled too. Let me just encourage you to, to, to go to Galatians 5, right? Or, or even, um, yeah, yeah, well, go to Galatians 5 and see it there, that Paul's battling there, that Paul's acknowledging that this, there's this fight and this battle that takes place there. So um, 
that's a non-answer answer to that question just to avoid controversy. But if you go back and listen to Pastor Mike's sermon series on Romans, Romans chapter 7, Pastor Mike is going to teach that this is uh, unregenerate Paul in Romans 7. He's reflecting back on his status as not a believer there. Um, and yet he's now a, a Christian looking back at that. Yeah. We've got one right here. Where are you, Matt? Stand up. You're Lewis. Um, so I had a question about how would you go about balancing a fear of God with an intimate relationship with Jesus? And yeah. how do you hold both at the same time? Yeah, I think we see it. Well, it, I, I need to be sensitive on this. If you had a, or had, have a good relationship with your earthly father, I think you know what that means. Um, I recognize not everybody in this room had that. And yet at the same time, maybe you understand the ideal there, right? Let's talk, let me talk to you guys who never had that. What you wish you had in your dad is not that you wish you had a best friend who would just sit there and do everything that you like to do and play with you all the time and you know invest in you and take you out girls on daddy-daughter dates and guys and throw the ball in the backyard with you and take you camping. And t- it's not that you just wish that you had that, right? And no, not a, a father who would you know, be invested in your life and you know, caring about your, your relationship with the Lord and putting rules in place in your life that he knew were, were good for you, right? You wanted both of those. You wanted to have a dad who loved you enough to say, look, I care about your holiness and your godliness. I'm not just gonna let you do whatever you wanna do. And there's gonna be discipline when you do something wrong, right? There's the fear portion of it. But then you also want the dad that you've got a relationship with who you know and sense and experience his love for you. And so there's that intimacy of the father-child relationship that's there as well, right? That's kind of the, the paradigm, and that's why God reveals himself this way in, in the Bible as our Heavenly Father, that he is our Father who loves us that way. So there's the fear in the sense of, man, God wants me to be like Christ. God wants me to grow in holiness, and he's laid that out for me. He's given me in Scripture clear you know, like I've talked about recently, the spiritual inventory list of Galatians 5 and Colossians chapter 3 um, in Ephesians 4. He's given me these lists and things that I need to see and, and do because I want to I please him. But yet at the same time, man, Romans 5, by this I know love that he gave his own son for me, right? Not when I was lovely to him and lovable to him, but when I was a weak, ungodly, sinful enemy of God, man, he loved me that much. John three sixteen, God so loved me that he gave his only son. So there's, there's leaning into that, right? The, the, the commands of scripture to, to be godly, don't stop us from singing with abandon. You are sovereign over us. What the enemy means for evil, you, you turn it for our good, right? It doesn't stop us from singing that, that he is good, that, that we love him. And so even that ability to, to worship him in song, I think is some of that intimacy that comes there. Uh, but yet at the same time, we know, wow, he, he doesn't want me to go astray. Because he loves me, he's got this desire that I be like Christ. So how do you balance that? I think for it's, it's, you have to be disciplined and intentional with it, right? I mean, we're all going to default towards one of those two things. We're going to default either towards God as the disciplinarian side or towards God as the, you know, big teddy bear side. And I think we have to be intentional to discipline ourselves to really, like Lewis used that word there, to strike that balance to say, man, 
as much as I want to be holy and be godly over here, and I do, I also need to remember that God has adopted me. He's given me the spirit of adoption by which I can approach him as Abba, which was a term of intimacy for a, a family member, for a dad. And he loves me, and he wants me to pray to him, and he wants me to, to worship him. Um, on the other hand, if you're all, you know, Caleb and ooey-gooey warm and fuzzies over here, you know, it's also important for us to remember, you know, God does, like we talked about in Pastor Mike's sermon this weekend in Hebrews chapter 12, God does discipline the children that he loves. And so if you're errant from him, and if you're all like, hey, grace and love and God and fluffiness and woohoo, and, and then you're living in sin, man, there's some fear that should be there to say, wait a minute, I, this is displeasing to God. And even in, in Pastor Mike's sermon this morning, one of the things that I loved and one of the points that he kind of hit and then moved on, but it's, it stuck with me as he talked about his dad. And he was talking about how, you know, if there's some neighborhood kids in, in the neighborhood as he's growing up who hate cops and they're making fun of cops, that's one thing. But then if they're making fun of his dad, it's like, oh man, that, that hurts me on a different level, right? So when we think about sin, there's that marriage there of the intimacy with God and the the fear of God going, man, I hate sin, not just because I'm supposed to, because otherwise there's discipline, but also because it grieves my, my father, it grieves God. Um, and I don't want him to be hurt in that sense. Is the use of a plant that gives medical benefits wrong to use? <laughs> I can answer this one. Guys, kale is good for you, okay? It may not taste that great, but it has medical benefits, and yes, you can eat it. There, you can eat it. Look, guys, if we're talking about marijuana, which I assume is what you're talking about here. If, if you're out there saying, I need to use marijuana, maybe we can talk offline. But there is zero room for the recreational use of marijuana anywhere in a Christian's life. Let me just be abundantly clear on that one, okay? No room for it whatsoever. Um, it is something that is turned to to uh, escape what the Bible calls us to, which is sober-mindedness. Um, and it is, uh, it's not good for you. Uh, I mean, you can argue with me that it, it you know, helps you relax, whatever. Look at, the, look at the science about what it does to your brain cells. Um, your body is a temple to the Lord. So... Uh, let me just answer it that way. There's zero, zero room in a, in a believer's life for recreational marijuana. Nowhere. Um, I don't care what law Newsom has passed on that. He does not trump God, no pun intended. Um, so, yeah. Okay, what about with, um, how can we know who are true godly friends? Is it better to have those who are all about logic, or can we have a mix of friends who are logical and also empathetic? Does yeah. that assume they can't be both? Right. I, I, I would say this. The <laughs> no, I mean, that, I mean that as a legitimate question. I would say, yeah, the, the answer to that question, I'm going to go away from the logical versus empathetic. I, I'm not as concerned about that. I want you to think about your friends and say, do I have friends that are willing to wound me? Um, and if you don't, then you don't have good friends. They can be as logical as you want them to be or as empathetic as you want them to be, but if they're not willing to call you out on sin, faithful are the wounds of a, what does the proverb say? Friend, right? Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. So if you have friends that surround you and all you hear from them 
is how awesome you are, you need to get some new friends, right? That doesn't mean that you need to hang around with a bunch of people that just make you feel like dirt all day either. But, but you, do need, you do need friends that are willing to, to speak truth and love into your life and say, look, I'm concerned about this. Those are friends. Logical versus empathy can factor into that, but that's the litmus test there, is do they care enough about you to care about your relationship with Christ? If they don't, then you need new friends. Um, back to talking about Gideon and praying. Is it sinful to ask God to close a door on an option when you're trying to think through making a decision? No, I don't, I don't think it's sinful to, to ask God to close a door because Gideon had had a command issued to him and he responded in doubt. God told him to do something. He said, okay, but, but here's a fleece. Um, if we're looking at two situations and saying, okay, God, I've got these two options and both of them seem reasonable right now, I pray that you would close a door. That's not throwing out a fleece in doubt of God. That's asking God to make something more clear to you. So that's the, the differentiation there. Um, what are your thoughts on the Enneagram test and personality tests? Don't. Just don't. You don't need a test to tell you what you are or who you are. You've got the Bible. You've got God. You've got Scripture. God is not concerned with what number you are on some man-made scale. And that does not change one thing. Let me reiterate this. That does not change one thing of what God expects of you. And so often we take these tests and we run with them in the church and we make them these things that we hide behind. Well, because I'm a number seven and a number eight and a number letter 12C9 XYZ, you can't get mad at me because that's just who I am. And it's like, no, it's not. Who you are is you're a son or you're a daughter of God. Follow Jesus and put all that garbage away, okay? So I'm, I'm, I'm sure I offended half of you in the room on that, and I'm not sorry. I'm just not. I mean, let's just stop. Just stop. Just stop it. Just don't, okay? Just the Enneagram, all that, just throw it away. Crumple it up, throw it in the garbage, and be a child of God and not a number, Okay? Um, is a lack of emotions or feeling when reading the word of God a sign of disobedience? Or how do we think through our feelings? Because we know that sometimes our feelings and our heart and our emotions can be deceitful. Right, yeah. Don't trust your feelings. Um, sometimes feelings will come and that's fine. Sometimes they can come and be genuine and that's fine. Um, God uses our feelings, engages our feelings, but you are not a Christian because of what you feel. You are a Christian because of what God has done to you. So... Um, if you're going to argue with me that you have to have an emotional experience every time you read the Bible, have you read through the book of Judges and, you know, the, Ehud, the left-handed judge, and the fat folded over and excrement came out after he stabbed him? Like, what's your emotional reaction to that? Or the numbers in the book of Numbers? Like, what's your emotional reaction to that? Oh, man, look at these Enneagrams. They're awesome. There's like... 40 over here and 1,000 over here and 95 million over here, and this is awesome. Now, I, yeah, I mean, if you read the Bible and you become emotional when you're reading something like Romans 5 and you're like, wow, God, this is amazing that you loved me when I was your, your enemy. That's amazing to me. Great, that's awesome. God may be working through that, but if you don't have that, that's not time to go, man, I need to panic because I'm, I'm lost or I'm seared or anything else like that. What do you do if, when... 
what do you do if you have doubts about life after death? What if life on this earth is all that there is? Yeah, that's a, a, a reasonable question, a question that a lot of people struggle with. That's a question that a lot of people struggle with who don't know Christ. And I, I would say, look, if you know Jesus as your Savior, um, one of the things that you could do is spend time reading the texts that talk about life after death. Spend time reading 1 Corinthians 15. Um, the certainty of the resurrection of Christ means the certainty of the resurrection of the believer. And if you say, well, what about the certainty of the resurrection of Christ, right? Then it's time to, to, again, turn to apologetics and say, how can we know that Christ rose from the dead? And there's very good, reasonable evidences that we can point back to on that. Um, let me just give you one off the top of my mind right now, and that is the, the fates of the 12 apostles, the, the 12 minus Judas. Judas committed suicide, but the other 12, right? They all died martyrs deaths and you think to yourself well yeah but that happens all the time with muslim terrorists and other things else like that that was super politically incorrect but i don't care um it happens all the time with with islamic terrorists right they die for their their faith but here's the deal none of them were eyewitnesses to muhammad none of them were there when what they are dying for supposedly took place all of the apostles were there and saw jesus christ with their own eyes risen from the dead and so then they go on and they die some of them in incredibly painful deaths for professing faith in the resurrected Christ. If that's a lie, they're not going to die for it. There's some point in time when our survival instincts as human beings is going to kick in and they're going to be like, this isn't worth it, right? Like James who's sawn in two is not going to get sawed in two if he knows that his half-brother didn't really rise from the dead, right? He's going to say, dude, I'm, I'm tapping out. I'm out. I'm just kidding. I'll show you where we hid the body. Peter's not going to get crucified upside down if he's not sure 100%. No, I put my eyes on the resurrected Jesus. I know he's alive and I know where I'm going. So go for it, right? Um, the apostle Paul is not going to go through everything that the apostle Paul went through, right? If you look at 2 Corinthians 11 and his resume of suffering, he's not going to go through all that stuff if he didn't actually encounter the resurrected Jesus on the road to Damascus. So there's evidence that's out there. So read those passages, encourage yourself with that. Revelation 21 and 22. I mean, those are two of the greatest chapters in the Bible. It talks to us about what heaven is going to be like. If you're wondering what heaven's going to be like, it's not some eternal choir. If you read that, there's a new earth. There's new creation. Chapter 22 talks about the nations coming in and out of New Jerusalem, bringing goods into Jerusalem. There's, life is happening, but it's a life with no sin, and it's life in the presence of the glory of God. It's, it's going to be phenomenal. So the Bible teaches us these things, shows us these things. So if you're a believer out there struggling with, and what is it like after I die? Spend time in those texts. If you're not a Christian, then it comes down to the, the reality of, of faith and the question of faith. And what are you going to choose to put your faith in? And this question about what, what, is, what is there after death is really the question of the existence of God. And once we get to the place where we believe that God exists, then it's this question mark of, okay, he exists, he created us. We have to ask, why did he create us? And that's where we get to this point of, did he create us just to live on average 75 years and die and become worm food? And eventually he's just going to stop this whole thing and go back to just being the Trinity. Well, there's a lot that he went through, including the sacrifice of his own son for just that, if there's no afterlife. But instead, if he created us for his glory and that includes the afterlife, well, then we've, we've got a starter at that point. So if you're a believer struggling with the existence, I would, number one, spend time in the scriptures. Number two, be honest with your leader or somebody else, your friends, 
ask them to help you in that regard, pray with you, meet with you, talk with you about it. Um, yeah, there's great books. The book uh, Heaven by Randy Alcorn is awesome uh, on trying to understand and wrap our minds around what heaven is going to be like. Pastor Mike wrote another book, uh, 10 Mistakes People Make About Heaven, Hell, and the Afterlife. That's a, a, a good book as well that's going to deal with some of that, those questions as well. Don't forget Matt. Matt's lonely back there. If you've got a live question, oh, flag him down. That's awesome. That's good. Never mind, Matt. We How don't want you. How late are we going? Because it's like 9 o'clock? No. I mean, yeah. we'll go until... The nice thing is I have them in text messages. So if we don't get to yours, I can try and get you a response. Or maybe we'll do them on social one by one or something like that. We'll figure yeah, it out. Yeah, we'll put your name. Um, so what about the sin of um, anxiety and getting overwhelmed with panic attacks, nausea, or even getting physical physically ill when yeah. dealing with anxiety. Now, when you said sin of anxiety, was that the question or was that your words? Uh, it was in the question. It was in the question. Okay. Because I think I heard somebody gasp over here with the word sin. Um, look, the Bible in Philippians 4, what does it say? What does it, what does it say? What does it say? Philippians 4, 6 says what? Okay. Be anxious for nothing. Paul wrote that. And he wrote that as a command, right? If we go to the original Greek, it's an imperative. It's a command. Be anxious for nothing. So what does that mean when I'm anxious? Am I sinning? In regards, in some respects, yes. And if you're offended by that, let me just encourage you to build your bridge and get over it because there's not a single person in this room who's not dealt with anxiety. Not one. Those sitting on the stage included, okay? So if you think you're unique because you struggle with anxiety... Let me just tell you, to, to crucify your pride on that, lay it down and understand that that's all of us, okay? So I'm not singling you out. For every single one of us in the, this room, as we've battled anxiety, there's been sinful thoughts, because here's where the sin comes in with anxiety. Anxiety is a failure to trust God for who he is and what he's promised, does that mean that your life should just be all roses and easy and puppy dog tails? No, it doesn't. It doesn't at all, right? Guys, I, like uh, when I was in high school, so going into my freshman year, I came home from school and my mom and dad were sitting there and my mom was in tears and my dad was in tears and she said to me, PJ, your, your dad's gonna be leaving. He's gonna be moving out. And I was... My dad was a pastor when I was growing up. He's why I wanted to go into the ministry. And I was going, what is going on? And she said, well, he's going to be going. My dad was inpatient in a clinical center for depression for 30 days. My parents separated and, and got back together three times and finally divorced my senior year of high school. So I, I know what it's like to worry. I know what it's like to battle anxiety. I've been there. I went to a, a college in Tennessee as a, a, a high school graduate right after all that called Rhodes College in Memphis. And I was going to be there and I was all set to go there. And I was there, guys, and God wrecked my life while I was there. I was on the phone in tears with my mom every night as a college freshman. Do you know how humiliating that is? Why? Because of anxiety. But here's the thing. At the end of the day, guys, God has promised what he's promised and he's revealed himself to be who he's revealed himself to be and that's why paul says be anxious for nothing not because your life is easy 
not because we don't go through hard times, but because our goal is to anchor and cement and ground and root our confidence and our trust and our faith in God and who he is and what he's promised. So, are you an apostate because of anxiety? No. No, absolutely not. Is anxiety a worse, a worse sin than this sin over here? No, I'm not going to argue that either. But I would say, let's not just embrace it and find our Enneagram score that identifies us that way. But no, let's, let's deal with the root and what's causing it and what's going af- after it. And let's, let's deal with what do we need to now correct and what do we need to believe about God? What are the truths that we can believe in response to the lies that are there? I, I don't want to steal too much of Amanda's thunder because she's going to be doing a, a workshop for the ladies, um, two-week workshop on the subject of anxiety, uh, ladies, after Thanksgiving, between Thanksgiving and Christmas. So um, she'll be dealing with that more in depth. Guys, we're going to be talking about putting on our, our big boy jocks and, and being men and responsible and taking ownership for our lives. So um, that's coming up. Spoiler alert. Do you want to talk about dating now? Do we have dating questions? We have a couple. Okay, can, so there's... Can we put a question in the mail? Huh? Over here. You've got another question? Yeah. yeah. Uh, hello. Hi. Uh, can you hear me? Yeah. Okay, good. So kind of going off what you were saying with anxiety and how you were talking about your story, um, do you think that God works through Christians or people he thinks will be Christian? Um, to what extent? Like, to what extent do you think he works through them? And how does he work through people that he knows won't be Christians? Like, do you think that everything is condoned and, like, made by God? Yes. Everything is made by God. Everything is part of God's decreed will, right? There's not one thing that takes place in this world, in this universe, apart from God's decreed will. Um, Even the cross, right? So let's talk about the cross. Let's talk about Judas, so in the book of Acts, we're in Acts chapter 2, it says that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. That means that God, according to his definite plan and foreknowledge, orchestrated the sinful events that led to the betrayal of Christ and, and his crucifixion. So every sin was part of God's decreed will and plan in that. So in that sense, yes, he works through in everyone, I guess, in, in that regard, um, in a different capacity. Um, real life example, okay? You've got, we've got the elections coming up and everybody's got their maybe anxiety over that, right? And fear over that. Can that be a source of sanctification in our lives? Absolutely. Be, can a, a politician we don't agree with and a politician that even frustrates us and makes us angry, can he serve as, a, as can God use him as a sanctifying influence in our lives? Yeah, for sure. Because my sinful response to him can all of a sudden reveal an area of my life that I need to grow in my Christ-likeness in. So, um, yeah, I mean, God can use anyone and and everyone in that regard. Let's talk dating. Okay, so a couple of questions. Should they date? Yes. Um, Yeah, so because there's no chapter and verse about dating, what are just some general advice that you would want to share with young people in the dating world? Um, Also... How, if we know biblically that wives are supposed to submit to their husbands, how does that translate into dating? And should you call out a brother in Christ who is dating an unbeliever? Okay. Let me start with the last one. Yes. 
Um, missionary dating, don't do it. I'm sure you've all got your, those of you that are in a relationship with an unbeliever, you're going to come to me with your anecdote about, well, I knew my fifth grade science teacher who was a Christian and dated an unbeliever and they got married and now they're both Christians. Fine. It doesn't mean it was God's pleasure that they were dating one another, right? The Bible is clear. We should not be unequally yoked to an unbeliever. And you want to come to me and say, well, that has to do with business, not marriage. Okay, really? Let's talk about the lesser to the greater as far as relationships go. What's more important, your marriage or your relationship with a business partner? marriage, right? So if I'm not supposed to be unequally yoked in a business relationship with an unbeliever, how much more so is it important that I not be unequally yoked, meaning in a relationship with an unbeliever in a marriage relationship, right? So if you are dating an unbeliever, let me be clear. If you want to come and talk to me afterwards and ask me, what do you think I should do? Here's my answer to you. I'm going to give you three, four words in response, okay? Break up with them. Break up with them. And if you're worried, well, what if they just get mad at Jesus? Let God handle that. He's big enough, okay? But your sanctification is more important at this point in time. Break up with them, okay? That's that question. What were the other ones? What general tips in dating? Um, let me, wives submitting to your husbands. We'll go just in reverse. The language there is intentional by Paul. Wives submit to your husbands. L- ladies, if, if you are... If you're in a home with a dad who's a believer, and I know, again, I know that's not everybody, but if you are, you are under his spiritual authority until he gives you away at the altar, okay? So your boyfriend, your fiance even, is not your spiritual authority at that point. Your, your fiance is growing into that role and becoming more of that, but until he, your dad gives you away, and that's what's so significant from the church in that mindset, that's what's taking place there is the transfer of spiritual authority and headship is going from the dad to the husband, and that's God's design, um, what if you're not a, a, in a home with a, a, a godly father? Well, maybe you have a, a, a pastor or somebody in your life who's a, a godly influence, right? Uh, you don't need to be submitting to your boyfriend in a, a spiritual headship capacity there. Um, that's not the intention there with, with that command for wives to submit to their husbands. But ladies, let me, let me back that up and say this. If the guy that you're dating is not a guy that you could see yourself submitting to in a, in a marriage relationship, Let me give you four words of advice again. Break up with them, okay? Because that dude's not going to change when you say I do. In fact, it's going to get worse. It's going to get worse uh, because you're going to see his sin like you haven't ever seen it before, right? So you're not going to find the perfect dude out there, so stop looking for him. Let me reiterate that. Guys, ladies, stop looking for the perfect guy, all right? Those of us who are married in the room, we will tell you we weren't perfect when our wives married us. It was God's grace and common grace in a moment that they chose to, to embrace us and marry us. But there was, at least, there was at least the willingness to say, hey, I could follow this guy. Um, and so if you're not there, ladies, again, find that guy, pull him aside afterwards and just gently say, hey, look, Pastor PJ told me I have to do this. It's over. It's not, <laughs> it's not, it's not me. It's It's not you, it's Pastor PJ. He said, break up with you, so here it is. We're broken up, okay? Uh, General dating advice. Yeah, date with intentionality, and especially at this stage of your life, okay? Let me be real with you guys. Once you're through the bridge, okay, finding somebody to get married to doesn't get easier. Finding somebody godly. Nathan is nodding his head in the back, man, and Nathan, (laughs) dude, look, brother. Look, not to call you out publicly, but I'm gonna call you out publicly. No, It does not get easier, okay? It gets harder. It gets harder to find somebody. So 
let me encourage you, plead with you, implore you, I beg you, find somebody. It should be top priority right now. Graduate from school or get a job that'll pay you a, a good enough amount of money to, to make a living, right? But find somebody who you think is cute and loves the Lord and say, hey, why don't we be cute and love Jesus together? Yes? Yes. But, but, st- <laughs> Nick, but stop this whole like, oh man, I just, my standards are, oh, yeah, they're super high and I don't want to compromise. Some of you, some of you need to introduce a little bit of compromise sanctified compromise to your list of the guy's got to look like this, be like this, act like this, think like this, or she's got to do all these things as well. If they love Jesus, they have a pulse, and they're somewhat attractive, ask them out, okay? Ask them out. And you can tweet that. (laughs) What's next? Let's move on. Let's, let's end that. Let's follow up. How long until you get married then? After. <laughs> like, like what's, what's a reasonable amount of time if you're starting to get to know somebody? Right. Is this your question, Matt? It's a general question. Okay. <laughs> I mean, he's not wrong. He's not wrong. What's up, Taylor? <laughs> Did, all right, so let's talk about this question. Yeah, no, it, there's no hard and fast rule on it. It's, number one, I'd say this. Is it responsible to get married? In other words, like, can you, can you provide, right? Um, I've had couples come in and meet with me, and, or guys come in and meet with me and be like, hey, I really want to marry this girl, and he's got a, like a part-time job working flipping burgers. I'm like, dude, you need to get a real job if you want to marry her. And that's true, right? You, I mean, you need to, to consider the, the practical implications of things, number one. Number two, you need to have people in your life that know you and know her, that know your relationship, and you guys need to be talking to each other and talking to them and seeking guidance from them, going, hey, do you guys, like, I, I really love this person a lot, and we're, I, I could see myself marrying her. Do you see any red flags? You know, is there anything that I'm missing on this? Uh, number two. Number three, uh, I, I still am old-fashioned. You need to go talk to her dad. If, they're, if the dad's in the picture and you need to say, hey, look, I would really love the honor of marrying your daughter. Um, and then number four, you need to get down on the knee and you need to propose. Um, not like, hey, I think it'd be great if we got married. No, you need, to, you need to do it well. You need to drop to a knee. You need to have the ring. You need to ask. And ladies, your job is to look past the ring to him and say the word yes, Okay. Amanda did this. She did a great job. I'm not saying this from experience. But sometimes it's like you just get blinded by the bling and you want that on your finger. And the guy's like, so, so we're like, this is happening? Yes. Um, yeah. So that, for some people, that's three months. For some people, that's three. Amanda and I dated for three years because I, I was interested in getting married earlier until I found out that I was going to have to pay for the rest of her college. And then I was like, you know what? We'll wait. We're good. <laughs> so... The way you sell it, say that doesn't really, like, sell it. You might want to change that story a little bit. Well, yeah, yeah. Um, what about if there is opposition from your parents or her parents in, that, in those conversations? Or from wise counsel of other people that are around you? Right. 
if they are believers, then there's layers there, right? Then we've got to talk about what's the opposition, why is the opposition, is the opposition not ever, is the opposition not now, why would it not be now, what are the factors under consideration there? If it's not ever, okay, why are you seeing something I'm not seeing? Um, if there are unbelievers that are saying this, let's say your parents are not Christians, and they're saying, no, we don't want you to marry this guy because he drives a Volkswagen, and we don't like those. Um, sorry for anybody who drives a Volkswagen. I've got nothing against them. It was just the first car that popped into mind. Yeah, then at, at that point in time, we're supposed to obey our parents, honor our parents. What does the text say? In the Lord, right? So at, at some point in time, if your parents are asking you to do something, is, is God in favor of marriage? Yes, right? And is God in favor of two believers marrying one another? Yes. And if you've got other voices in your life, including friends and pastors and leaders who are saying, this is a great relationship, we think this is right, you guys are entering into that stage of adulthood now wherein you're entering in that stage of independence where your relationship with your parents becomes more peer-to-peer than it does parent-to-child. How do you still honor them? Well, you still respect them. You still ask their opinion. You still seek their counsel. You still seek their advice. But it doesn't mean that you will always go with exactly what they think is right. And that's even for you with believing parents. You're going to make decisions once you leave the house and go off on your own that your Christian parents may look at and go, you know what, we wouldn't have done that. Um, That doesn't mean that you're in sin because you went against your parents' desires in that particular arena. So uh, I would say there's no flat response answer to that. It's, It's a little bit of a trickier question there. Are there any other questions on dating? Or can I transition to something else? Yes. Uh, this has nothing to do with dating, but it has to do with like... Um, so not dating then? Well, no, no. It kind of does though, but... Sort of. Sort of, but not really. Okay. Is it about courting? It's about uh, what if you want to stay single? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and that, that's true. I mean, the, the Bible talks about the gift of singleness, right? And... I remember when Amanda and I first started dating, we were going to, to Grace Church up in LA and we were going to the college group there and Rick Holland was preaching through 1 Corinthians and we had gone out on like one date and I was like super ecstatic because I loved her so much. Well, I thought, I didn't know at that point, but I thought she was cute and she loves Jesus. So we go to the church and he's coming to 2 Corinthians chapter se- or 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and he's getting into the chapter on singleness. I'm like, oh, come on, man. He's going to Jesus juke me, and, and I'm going to get broken up with on this. Because he's going to talk about how being single is holier, and you, you can pursue Jesus better. And it was awesome, because this guy was the marriage pastor. He was like, you guys need to be married. Find somebody who loves Jesus and get married. And I was like, this is awesome. Like, we're going back next week to this. Um, no, and he said this. He, he said, Singleness is a gift, and if it's a gift you want to return, you probably don't have it, right? So that's not to say that everyone who is single for their whole life wants to be single for their whole life, but most people who embrace the gift of singleness, they're fine with it. They're like, I'm good being single, right? The Apostle Paul, it's like, man, I wish that all of y'all had that, because what does it mean for me? It means that I get to be more fruitful in my service for Christ, which is really the goal for singleness. If it's more of, I don't want to deal with somebody else's junk, well, that's a sinful reason to want to be single. Um, but if it's, this frees me up to serve the Lord more, then yeah, for sure. Yeah. That was related to dating. Yeah. And courting. 
So you would say if somebody really wants to be in a relationship that, I mean, how would you encourage them to be content while being single? Well, Paul talks about that, right? And that's what he's driving at there. And, and Rick, this pastor made this point as well. He said, everybody has the gift of singleness at some point in time in their lives. Everybody does. And until you're married, married really, you, you kind of have that. Well, in the fullness of it, you have it when you're not dating anyone. So how, what's contentment there? Contentment is to say, well, what would Paul have me be doing as I'm single? Well, Paul would say, when you're single, you're not worried about the things in, in, of uh, a spouse, a wife, a husband. You're not worried about those things. You're, you can go serve the Lord. You can use your time. You can do whatever you want to do. You can go out and, and serve the church more. You can serve the church every night if you want to go serve the church. You can open up your home. You don't have to worry about, hey, what's, oh man, I've got to be committed to this person over here. I've got to go out on a date over here. I've got to do this over here. And not that when you're married, you think that way because you love being with that person. But at the same time, you your attention is divided, right? So contentment comes from, I'm going to, yeah, I want to be married. I want to be in a, a, a relationship. So I'm going to pray and ask the Lord for that. But in the meantime, I'm not going to sit here and be discontent with the time that he's given me. I want to redeem it by throwing myself into serving the church with everything that I've got and being useful to him during this time. Because um, the best place for you to meet somebody who loves Jesus and is cute is in the church. So again, just a shameless plug, like at big gatherings like this one. Or events. Or events. Um, what's your opinion on saying I love you? <laughs> it's up to you. It's up to you. I think it should have weight to it, is what I would say. I, I don't think we should throw it out there first date. Dude, I totally love you. Thanks for taking me to Wendy's. By the way, the new Wendy's in Aliso is legit. The pretzel pub bacon burger, so good. So good. Wendy's is the best fast food restaurant in Aliso. Done. I'm, I'm putting that in, out there. Anyways, so guys, you should find a girl who loves Jesus and loves Wendy's and then tell her you love her. Um, no, but it should have weight to it. It shouldn't be something that you just throw out there, right? Uh, just full disclosure, Amanda and I waited until we were engaged. And we then said, I love you after we were engaged. That's not a hard and fast rule or law. That's what we chose to do. Um, you just want it to mean something. You don't want it to be flippant. Yeah. To be fair, we came up with other words that meant the same thing <laughs> and said those. <laughs> but that's yeah. okay. Um, <laughs> okay. There's so many different ones that go in so many different directions. And I'm not going to do them all justice. But... Just touching on the topic of alcohol and the consumption of it, and then also participating in events where you know that there will be alcohol and people consuming alcohol, is it okay to still participate and maybe make yourself a designated driver? Are you allowed to indulge? What is the, what's the boundary yeah. on alcohol? Having a drink is not a sin if you are of legal drinking age. The issue is not a, a sin issue for one drink. The issue is a wisdom issue, I would say. Um, drinking to excess so that you lose the ability to be sober-minded is a sin. Um, and the hard thing is, for you to figure out where that line is, you have to cross that line. Um, that's why for some of you, and for most of you in the room, it's probably safer just not to. And to just trust that it's not something that you're missing out on. 
if it is something in your heart that you feel like, man, I'm really missing out because I'm not drinking, that's called an idol. Uh, because you're looking for satisfaction in something that the Lord has not necessarily provided you to find satisfaction in. And if you want to argue to me, well, I can drink, God, drink a beer to the glory of God. Okay, you can do a lot of things to the glory of God. You can skydive to the glory of God. How many of you are signing up to go do that tomorrow? Right? I mean, you don't have to do those things to glorify God. What about showing up at a party where there's alcohol? Yeah, you're not going to, that's going to happen over the course of your life. You're not going to pre-screen every single one of your parties. I mean, maybe some of you will, and you'll be that guy. Um, <laughs> but it's just being wise while you're there. If you're in a party, if you're at a party and everybody is just wasted, do you, do you want to be there? It really, do you, do you want to be there? It doesn't sound like a fun place to me. Um, you know, what about being a designated driver? Okay. Yeah, I, I suppose that's honorable. But again, why are you there? I wouldn't be there by yourself. What does the Bible say? Bad company does what? Corrupts good morals. So if you're really convicted to say, you know what, I feel like the Lord wants to use me as a designated driver, um, have vomit bags in the backseat of your car, and go with somebody else. Bring another believer with you who you know is going to be there and also not drink with you um, so that you guys can, you know, be together like the writer of Ecclesiastes says, like Solomon says, right? Two are better than one. A three-stranded cord is not easily broken. Um, be smart about that, right? And I'll just, I'll be honest with you guys. Uh, you know, I know Pastor Mike has said from the pulpit many times that he's never had alcohol. That's, that's not my background. That's not my story, Okay. So I'm not telling you that as somebody who's, who's never been exposed to it. Um, and I'm still sitting here telling you, I, I don't think you have to. I don't think it's necessary. We have a follow-up to that. Yeah. Um, can you clarify why in some circumstances it's okay to have alcohol, but it, in no circumstances is it okay to have marijuana? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, marijuana is... It, it, you, you smoke marijuana for a, the purpose of getting buzzed, right? Of altering your state of consciousness. To drink a beer does not alter necessarily your state of consciousness. There is a, a dividing line there, right? There's a way to have a beer that does not alter your state of consciousness. Um, if you want to argue with me that I'm going to smoke half a joint and it's not going to alter my state of consciousness, it's like, how far can I go with my girlfriend before it's too far? You're asking the same question, right? It's better just not to. And if you're going to press me on it, I'm going to say, if you want my honest answer, don't drink and don't smoke marijuana. And don't do crack either, right? Like, let's just go all the way. Don't do heroin. Don't do any of it, right? Let's just, let's just not. Um, yeah. It's not helpful. Um, would it be sinful to not want to have children but possibly adopt or even not have any children when you think about the command to be fruitful and multiply? Right. Well, that is the command. Be fruitful and multiply. So that doesn't mean that that comes through biological children, right? That is not necessarily what that command is. But that can come through the process of adoption, um, this is a hard, hard subject for people, and I understand that. I would say that ultimately it's God's desire that Christian families have children in the home. 
um, whether that be through adoption or through having children of their own. Because the purpose of that command is that more of his image bearers may be created to fill the earth. That's why God gave that command. Not to take cute pictures of your baby and put it up on Instagram. The, the command was given first to Adam and Eve, right? Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth as my image bearers. And then the command was next given to Noah and his descendants, right? Because why? Because God had wiped out everybody else. Be fruitful and fill the earth. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Why? Because they were to be his image bearers. Christian families are incubators of the next generations of Christians. And that's God's design, and God wants that. So whether that's through adoption or through having biological children, either one of those options is completely legitimate. But I do believe that it would be in keeping with the command of Scripture to have children in the home as Christians. Are there unique circumstances that may uh, preclude that? Sure, I'm willing to concede that. Um, but as a general rule of thumb, I would say yes. What if someone is single? Should they not ever bring no. children into their home? No, I don't, I don't think so. I think God's design is for a husband and wife to, to raise a child. I think God's design is for the nuclear family to be a place where children are raised. But I don't think it's wrong if a single person who is a believer adopts a child and raises that child in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. I think that that's uh, appropriate in some circumstances as well. But I do think the, the intention that, that God created and designed is for a, a mom and a dad to raise the children. How are we doing? Do we want to keep going or do we want to stop? I guess if they get up and leave, they want to stop, right? <laughs> Somewhere out there, somebody's like, oh, man, can we please oh. stop? And they're like, no, <laughs> no, I should have said something. Just and now you can't there. because it's like, oh, you're that guy. If you need to get up and go, it's okay. You're adults. Um, what about with the topic of politics? What if sometimes you can agree with and disagree with both sides of a political debate um, and you're not actually, because of all the controversy, you're not actually interested in voting because everybody fights about everything and it's useless anyway. Yikes. Um, look, there's, there's, no, there's, there's no perfect candidate. There's no sinless party. Jesus is not running. Um, so what we do is we take the Bible and we look at the biblical principles represented in the Bible and we make our decision and we vote according to our conscience informed by the scriptures. Um, there are matters in the scripture that I think are weightier to consider than some others. Um, for example, the treatment of the unborn is pretty massive. The murder or protection of the unborn is an enormous issue. And y'all, there's no gray area across party lines on that. There's absolute abundant clarity on that. And to say it's useless because the infighting continues is kind of like the person who says, well, I'm not going to pray because God is sovereign. Yeah, well, God uses the votes of his people to bring and put the person in office that he's going to put in office. At the end of the day, does God know who's going to be in the Oval Office? Yes, 100%. Does he know who our next president is? Yes. Does he know who the president of your grandchildren will be if he waits that long? Yes, he does. 
but he's given us the responsibility to vote and he's entrusted that to us. And if we as a church stand up and say, well, we're just not going to get our hands dirty in politics because there's no perfect candidate, man, God's going to discipline us for that. One of the, the good purposes of the church, one of the common grace elements of the church is that the church has a, a, a sanctifying, if I can even use that term, a, a maybe moralizing impact on culture. That the church restrains evil through doing things like voting or not. So should you vote? If you've got to vote, yes. And I think, you know, I'm not here to tell you who to vote for or how to vote, but I, I think you need to look at the scriptures and you need to look at the clear principles that are represented by the candidates and vote according to your conscience based on the fact that, yeah, at some point in time, 2 Corinthians 5.10, the bema seat of Christ, not the, not the great white throne where I'm judged for heaven or hell, but the bema seat where there's reward dispensed, man, my, my vote and my responsibility to, to do what God gave me to do there, that's going to factor in. It's going to have an impact there. So do, should you vote? Yes, you should vote. And you should vote according to your convictions informed by the scriptures. Is nationalism or patriotism a sin? Oh. Um, I am wearing my red and blue shirt with white buttons. Um, you're welcome. Look, let me answer that this way. Revelation 19, the nations gathered against Christ and his church. America will be on that battlefield, standing against Christ the Navy SEALs will be fighting against the return of Christ. The Rangers will be fighting against the return of Christ. Our planes will be in the air. Our missiles will be pointed. We are not God's people because we are Americans. We are God's people because we are part of the church, part of the redeemed. We've been saved by Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Can we be thankful for our country? Yes. We should be thankful for our country. But we are not Israel 2.0. There's one national people of God, and not even the national people of God. If I understand, again, Romans 9, there's a spiritual people of God, and that is, that is Israel. And he's going to come back, and he's going to do business with Israel again. We are not Israel. So can we love our country? Yes. Can we serve our country? Yes. But we need to be careful not to blur the lines between being an American and being a Christian and the Constitution in the Bible. The rights we have in the Constitution are granted to us by a bunch of dead guys, not God. So we need to be careful about that. Love your country, serve your country, fulfill your duty to your country as a citizen, but you are a child of God because of Jesus, not because of your zip code. In serving in the church specifically, is being a yes man always a good thing? And how do you say no when you feel like no one else is willing to step up? Yeah, no. What needs to be done? No, being a yes man isn't always a good thing. In fact, sometimes if you're always the one that's stepping in, filling the void, you're robbing other people of their opportunity to step in and serve, right? 
um, because they're like, well, I don't have to because this person's always doing it. So sometimes it's okay even to let the ball drop and to say, and to use it as an opportunity to come alongside somebody else and say, you know, what do you think about stepping in and doing that? Um, as pastors, a lot of times we have people come to us with great ideas and they're like, hey, what if we did this and this would be so awesome and we should do this. And one of the things that we'll do is say, great, do you want to lead that? No. Okay, well, who's going to do that? Well, that's why we're having this meeting. You are. No, I'm not going to do that. I, I don't have the bandwidth to do that right now. It's a great idea. I would love for you to, to grab it and run with it. So no, serving in the church is not always about being a yes man, but if you're going to say no, have a good reason why. And that reason should be something that is glorifying to the Lord. And maybe it is, man, I am burned out. And if I say yes to that and add that on, that's going to make me less effective in these other areas, and that's going to hurt the church. So I'm going to say no for the good of the church because I've got too much on my plate right now. Um, but on the other hand, don't under underestimate God. If you're out there going, man, I don't, I don't know if I have anything to offer. The Bible says that God gives every single person a gift, right? And Paul says in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, I believe that it is that God has arranged each member of the body as he chose, meaning that he put you in this church for a reason, to use your giftedness to serve the church. So get off the sideline. If you're not serving, get involved and get serving. Absolutely. This one just says, I personally feel that Christians shouldn't celebrate Halloween, Christmas, and Easter. What are your thoughts? Okay. Um, I don't want to come to your house right now because Christmas is my favorite. No, I, I get what you're driving out there. It's the, already Christmas. The Hallmark, house. like secularized side of things there. That's fine, whatever. The Bible's silent on it. If this is a conscience issue for you and your family, then, then fine, don't. I don't want you to sin against your conscience. But don't look down at your nose at me because I was listening to Michael Buble on my drive to work this morning, okay? Just don't, because, I mean, this is an area that's, that's not a righteousness-unrighteousness area, right? This is a preference area. I'd love to talk to you and kind of find out a little bit more behind that. Halloween, I know there's people that are like, hey, there's demonic roots. The reason why we always have Fall Fest, except for when, you know, there's a pandemic, um, <laughs> is because we're looking for an opportunity to redeem that and to, to use it to get people here on the church and to get them to, to even interact with believers and Christians and hear the gospel. So that's why we're involved there. Christmas, you know, the giving of gifts is meant to remind us of the greatest gift that was given. So if your stance is, well, it's all commercialism and materialism and it's all bad, I'm going to push back on that and say, man, you're judging the motives of everybody who's participating in that. And I, I don't know that that's quite fair, especially as the Bible commends generosity as well. Um, and Christmas can be a, a time of generosity towards one another. And then Easter, if you're going to argue, well, this was some, you know, weird fertility cult thing. And so we always say Resurrection Sunday and not Easter. Fine. Have a Resurrection Sunday oval-shaped container hunt in your backyard. Um, and don't eat the Cadbury Easter eggs. That's fine. I, I'm, I'm good with that. But... Yeah, I would say that's a conscience issue for you and not a, a universal, like, yeah, we need to impose this on every believer kind of issue. Um, can you explain what gluttony is? Hmm. I mean, the, the basic definition is overeating. Well, what does that mean? It's, it's eating to excess. It's, you know, wasting. It's... Um, 
not being thankful for what you have. And even some of gluttony is a lack of trust that God is going to provide another meal for you down the road to sustain you. Um, so, and it's not always necessarily food either, right? We can be gluttons for other things. You can be gluttons for entertainment. You can be gluttons for social media. You can be gluttons for praise. You can be gluttons for social interaction. I mean, there's this level wherein you just, it's, it's to an excess. Well, how much is an excess? That's going to vary for the, the person. Because again, it's going to deal more with your heart than it is with your, um, with how many calories you eat, right? Um, an offensive lineman can eat way more than I can eat. Uh, if I ate as much as an offensive lineman eats, then yeah, it's going to cross over into gluttony for me. But for them, they're like, dude, this is what I need to just be able to, to play football. Yeah, that's a weird answer. So there you go. Um, why does our Bible not include the book of Enoch? Why is it not considered the inspired word of God? Apocryphal. Um, never anywhere does, do any of the, the, the apocryphal books profess to be scripture. Uh, none of the, uh, the Old Testament saints, nor did any of the Jewish leaders point back to them as scripture. Uh, none of the apostles, nor did any of the church fathers hold them up and teach them as scripture. So just by way of tradition, just like there are so many other books and letters that were written around the time of the formation of the scriptures that we, po- we could also point to and say, well, why not these? Uh, the answer is because this is not what was part of God's plan. Um, I think the, the, certainly the, the early church knew of the Apocrypha. They knew the writings were there, and yet they don't quote them. They don't appeal to them. They don't list them, and they don't teach them as scripture. That's good enough for me. Um, I, don't, I don't need to, to go beyond what they have. Does it mean that everything in the Apocrypha is false? No. Just like a, a history book written at that time could record historical things. But can we say that this is the authoritative, inspired, inerrant word of God? No, that's where we stand, stand up and say we're, we're, we're not going to go that far. Why was Mark 16, 9 through 20 added to the Bible, and should we take it as God's word or dismiss it? Yeah. So in manuscript copying, um, there are a lot of different types of errors that can take place, and most of the errors are going to be small. So you lay five manuscripts of of Mark chapter 5. Let's just take Mark chapter 5, side by side by side by side. Well, this manuscript may include the word and, this manuscript may not include the word and, but these three over here do, right? So the conclusion we're going to make as we're compiling these manuscripts for our translation is to say the word and is probably in there because four out of the five include it. This guy hiccuped when he was reading the, 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 the manuscript and left out the word and, but the rest of them have it, so we're going to say, yeah, that's there. When you're dealing with a longer portion, like the end of Mark, or even like John 8, which is the same way, right? It's bracketed in your Bible. If you look at it, the, the interaction with Jesus, the woman caught in adultery, it's, it's going to say this is not there in most of the manuscripts. There were some copyists who decided, you know what, we're going to add a portion into the Bible to clarify or uh, this is something that they were taught or they read somewhere else. And so they make a decision that they're going to add it in there. And you think to yourself, wow, that's horrible. Why would anybody do that? And I would agree with you. And that's why it's bracketed, because they put it in there, and then at some point in time, this was copied by these other manuscript people as well. But then when we go back to the oldest manuscripts, they don't have Mark 16, and they also don't have John 8. So we're going to go back to those oldest manuscripts and go, okay, at some point in time, somebody slipped John 8 and Mark 16 in the Bible. And so they're in our Bibles, but they're not back here. So what do we do with Mark 16 and John 8? Well, I think 
we need to understand that it's likely not the inspired and authoritative word of God. Uh, but we need to read them and say, okay, does it teach us anything that is her- heretical? And the answer is no. Does it contradict any of Jesus' other teachings? The answer I would say is, is no, though the end of Mark has some pretty fantastic things like picking up serpents. And if you go hang out in the backwoods of North Carolina, you're going to find a bunch of churches that, that do stuff like that. Um, personally, how, how would I teach it? I, I would teach it like that. If I was preaching through John or preaching through Mark and I came up to that, I would, I would clarify, look, this is probably not God's inspired word at a, at a later time by a copyist, by a, a, a scribe. Uh, it's not in the, the majority of the manuscripts. It's interesting though, here's what we can learn from it and maybe show and, and go to other passages that we do know are solid and say, we see the same concepts over here. Uh, like the woman caught in adultery, let him without sin cast the first stone. Okay, he's teaching forgiveness of, a, of an enormously offensive sin. I'm going to go to Christ on the cross when he prays to his father and says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Same principle, one's a little bit more solid ground than the other one, right? Did the other one happen? Maybe it did, but we don't know for sure. By the way, those are the only two passages that are like that. John 8, just that first portion of John 8 and Mark 16. Um, If the Pharisees were so well trained and had the Old Testament prophecies, how is it that they missed who Jesus was? Yeah, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 says this, Therefore, having this ministry, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways, We refuse to practice cunning or tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. So like Paul says there, The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. Pharisees were unbelievers. God had blinded their minds. They had more knowledge than the others did, but they were still unbelievers. God had blinded their eyes. But here's the other thing, too. They were looking for the wrong type of Messiah. They were looking for a political and military Messiah. And so were Jesus' followers. Remember Luke 24, right? The two disciples that are on the road to Emmaus. Jesus walks up in stealth mode. And he goes up to them and he says, hey, what, what's up? Why the long faces? And they turn and they look at Jesus and they're like, Do you, are you the only one who doesn't know what just happened? And they say, man, look, the guy that we thought in its past tense, we thought was the Messiah, he was just crucified back there. So why don't you chill, leave us alone for a little while because we're a little bummed out. Well, then Jesus says, hey, look, foolish one, slow of heart to believe. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer and then enter into glory? So they were expecting the wrong type of Messiah. And when Jesus comes on the scene, meek and humble and lowly and mounted on a donkey, and he's the son of a carpenter, and he's not sitting at the feet of Gamaliel like Paul was, and he's not, you know, bashing Roman heads together like the zealots would and things like that. They're looking at Jesus going, this guy can't be the Messiah. There's no way this guy's the Messiah. So they missed him because two things. Number one, their eyes were blinded. And number two, they were looking for the wrong type of Messiah. They weren't looking for a Messiah who was going to die for their sins, which was their greatest need. If someone is majoring in the field of psychology, how can they do this and still be grounded with God? Fully? Yeah, the Bible. The Bible is your authority. 
The Bible is always your authority. And the Bible needs no help. So bring your Bible into the field of psychology, just like I would say bring your Bible into the field of astrophysics. Bring your Bible into the field of chemistry. Bring your Bible into the field of foreign languages. Bring your Bible into the field of English. The Bible is our authority. If you're being taught something that is anti-biblical, jettison it. If you're being taught something that is not truth, according to God's word, jettison it. If the world is trying to teach you something and pass it off as truth, and the Bible would say, yes, this is truth, but they're trying to come at it from this way, and the Bible comes at it from this way, you go, well, thanks, I appreciate this, but this is true not because of this. It's true because of what the Bible says over here. So I think there are some fields that are more dangerous for Christians to enter into than others, and I would, I would put psychology in that realm. But I would just say bring the Bible into it. Bring the Bible into it. Um, and make sure that the Bible wins every time. And that's with everything that you're studying. It's with everything that you're studying. How can we be better support over for our overseas missionaries from the church? And how would someone go about praying and thinking through going overseas in missions? Yeah. You know, supporting them is building, trying to build a relationship with them would be the number one thing I would suggest is getting to know them. Um, our missionaries are awesome. We know personally the Zellers who are in Dubai. It's Eric's fault that I'm here at the church, so you can either love him for that or hate him for that. It's up to you. But um, we love them to death. They're awesome. And uh, and so we, we love to keep in touch with them and, and find out how they're doing. And when they're here visiting, we, we spend time with them and spend time with their family, right? So build a relationship with them, whoever that is, whether that's one of our missionaries here or somebody else that maybe your family is supported, they're going to appreciate that. Do they need, you know, financial support? Yes. So if you can support them financially, support them financially. They absolutely need that. But then they also don't want just your check and not your care and concern. So build the relationship, pray for them. Um, and in building a relationship, you're going to know how you can better pray for them as well. What about if you want to go overseas? I, I would say, number one, do you want to, Right. Um, do you want to go overseas and be a missionary? Is that something that's a desire of yours? If it is, okay, then now let's begin to think through that and, and pray through that. What does that look like? Do, is there a region, is there an area that's on your heart that God is impressing upon you? Um, if not, you know, maybe it's time to, to grab a book like Operation World um, or go on to the Joshua Project website and start to read about these nations and, and learn about them and pray that God would give you direction as to where he would have you go and, and serve and be. Um, and then, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of missionaries being trained. Um, so, you know, pursuing biblical training in some form or fashion, whether that's here at CBI, which is just shameless plug right across the street and cheap and easy to access, or, you know, going off to Bible college and getting a degree. I, I think sometimes we're like, well, we just need to go on the mission field and tell people about Jesus. And it's like, yeah, that's true, but I think it's, we're doing a disservice if we're not trained when we go to do it, just like we're not, we're doing a disservice if we're not trained to go into to ministry here in the United States. I mean, why do we hold our pastors here to a higher standard than we hold the missionaries that we send overseas? Um, so I'd say think about getting training as well. Yeah, my son Joshua, who's 11, he's like, I want to be a missionary, and he's super stressed because he, God hasn't told him yet where he wants him to go. Um, it's like a, every other week conversation, he's like, Dad, God still hasn't told me where he wants me to go. It's like, okay, Joshua, you're 11, you got some time. 
But he's uh, learning Mandarin, though. He's learning Mandarin. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, who is Don Francisco? Was that you? No, that was somebody asked if you could add some Don Francisco songs to the worship lineup. I don't know who that is. Though. I, that's a Nathan question. I don't know who that is either. It's not Nathan who asked them. No, but that's a question oh. for Nathan. Oh yeah, you can text Nathan yeah. or email him at nathan at compasschurch.org and yeah. ask that question. Do you see that? That was a punt. Um, okay, how much more do you want to do? Let's go to 7.30, so five more minutes. Okay, so you're going to have a lot of text to answer, but we're doing our best. Um, can we go back to the, the topic of dating? Did it just get darker in here? Is that just me? Was that just a total me thing? Okay, all right, well, I'm going to get my eyes checked out. Okay, can you talk a little bit about physical boundaries when it comes to dating? What kind of rules should dating couples put into place? Like, should they be alone together at night? When, where do they draw the line? Should there yeah. be a list? You should be alone together at night until 7.32 and 45 seconds. <laughs> Some of you are going to mm. have to leave here early. One second after, it's sin. <laughs> no, guys. Yeah. <sighs> 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 Some of you were in True North when I sat in on Pastor Rod's tough questions, and you may have remembered how I answered this. Be very careful physically. Very careful physically. What did Paul say in 1 Corinthians 10, 31? Whether I eat or drink, I do everything for what? For the glory of God. So if you can come talk to me about how you can make out and get horizontal with your girlfriend for the glory of God, then we can have that conversation, okay? You're not going to win. You won't win that conversation. Let me just be blunt with you. This is going to be recorded, live streamed right now. It's, Guys, when, it's, let be, it's being live streamed right now. My telephone number is out when, in the general public. When you... <laughs> it's okay. Yeah, maybe we won't... Yeah. Just as a heads up. Maybe we'll just put the audio up on the, the actual feed. Oh, well. <laughs> I've been on you to change that number for, you know, years. Um, let me just be blunt with you and honest with you. Look, once you get married, you have plenty of time to have sex and sex. Yes, is amazing. But once you get married, you have plenty of time. Don't do something stupid before you get married because you're, you're horny. Okay. Just don't, don't sacrifice potentially eternity on the altar of immediate gratification. Am I saying that you're destined for hell if you have sex before marriage? No, I'm not. But I'm saying, look, if, if, if you pursue that path and go down that path, it could be indicative of the fact that maybe you don't have a relationship with the Lord. I mean, it's, it's certainly, you're playing with fire in there, right? Sex is amazing. God gave it to a husband and wife to be enjoyed within the confines of marriage. And when you are married, a healthy biblical marriage has plenty of time for that, okay? Plenty of time for that. Spend your dating time finding out whether or not this person is a godly person that you can see loving them like Christ loved the church men and loving them as the church submits to Christ ladies, right? I mean, th that's where you need to find out. And, and how they are as a kisser has nothing to do with that. Nothing to do with that. Um, does that mean you can't kiss your, your boyfriend or girlfriend? No, sure, go for it, kiss them. But guys, just be careful. It is dangerous. It is a slippery slope. And you justify one thing, you can justify another thing, you can justify another thing, you can justify another thing, and you can justify another thing. So you better be able to sing, Lord, I lift your name on high, after you do whatever you do with your girlfriend or your boyfriend. 
that song really? I don't know. It's the first one. Maybe Don Francisco has a better one. I don't know who that is. I don't know, like a post-makeout Jesus Praise song. Like, I don't know what that is. Probably doesn't exist. And there's a reason why that doesn't exist, right? Um, yeah, like Behold Our God. Maybe that's a good one. Like, can you sing Behold Our God after you finish with your date? If you can, your date was on par with Jesus. If not, then let's talk. Um, look, what about if you've gone too far already? There's hope, okay? There is absolutely, 100%, without a doubt, no question, hope for you, okay? You are not lost. You are not broken. You are not dirty. You are not to be cast aside. None of that, okay? The, the gospel and Jesus Christ, and if you are a believer, you know, the, the opportunity to repent from your sins and continue to grow in Christ's likeness and sanctification is there. It exists. This is not the unpardonable sin, Okay? It's not. I'm just trying to warn you and admonish you ahead of time to, to save you the heartache of the consequences if you, if you go too far, if you cross those lines. If you ask me what that line is, again, I'm, I'm not going to tell you what that line is because I, I don't know what that is for you. Um, right? I mean, you know, though. And, uh, and just be smart. Be wise on that. Can you do one more? <laughs> yes. So we don't end talking about that? Or are we going to end talking about that? Is there a follow-up to that? Um, is it a sin to lie in order to save someone's life? <laughs> is it a sin to lie in order to save someone's life? Okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to talk about scenarios, right? In war, is it wrong to have spies? To be a Christian and to be a spy in a time of war? We would argue no for the, the cause of the greater good, right? In that. Here's the difficult thing, guys. Sin is sin. It is. Sin is disobedience to God's word. And the case that comes up every single time is what about Corey Tenboom? And Rahab. And Rahab. What about them? This is a gotcha question because. I would like you, whoever asked this question, to come up and tell me about how you've been in this circumstance, in this scenario, after this. If you have a corrupt or evil or wicked governing official demanding you betray someone and you know that that's going to lead to the end of their life should you lie is that the greater good in that moment if i'm in that moment i'm probably lying but at the same time can i say without question that if i told the truth that god's not big enough to still spare that person and reveal that he is a god of power and strength and my lie might not have been more rooted in my fear than in my trust Maybe. 
the answer, I mean, the reality is Corey Ten Boom and Frank, they, they deceived, they lied to hide Jews from the Nazis. We don't know for sure what would have happened had they told the truth. It's a bad question to end on. Do you want something else? Yeah. Um, how do you feel about Harry Potter? And would you let your children watch Harry Potter? <laughs> Thanks, Nathan. Didn't my son come to the edge dressed as Harry Potter? It's very possible. Oh, he's oh, dressed yeah. as you. Okay. He went to school dressed as Harry Potter. He went to school dressed as Harry Potter. That's right. Look, guys, it's, it's, it's pop culture entertainment. We teach our son that wizardry and witchcraft is, is not something that is to be pursued um, as much as he wants to win the Quidditch World Cup. You know, that's a pipe dream. I'm trying to get my son to love Jesus and my kids to love Jesus. And, and I'm not really worried about moralizing them to the point that they're going to judge people who watch Harry Potter at this point in time, just to shoot you straight and be honest with you. If you don't watch Harry Potter, don't read the books. Great. That, again, I, I'm going to come back to that's a conscience issue more than it is uh, an ability to, to say 100% without a doubt, this is black and white God's word. Can you just clarify what you mean by sinning against your conscience? Yeah. I mean, if you, if you have a problem with it, you think this is bad because I feel like this glorifies wizardry and witchcraft and or giant bearded men who have a gluttony problem um, or the mistreatment of owls because it puts them in cages or, you know, it's, it's prejudiced against weird, creepy white guys with no nose. Fine. Then don't watch it, right? Because if, if at that point you watch it, you are sinning against your conscience. Your conscience says, don't do this. I feel like God doesn't want me to do this. Yeah, maybe it's not a black and white scriptural principle, but God doesn't want me to do this. I feel strongly that I don't want to do this, that God is telling me not to do this. If I then do it, I'm sinning against my conscience because God is using maybe my conscience to convict me personally that I don't want to do this. Fair enough? What's the look? What do you want? What do you want from me? I was like eight more questions, so like you're never. I mean, we'll be here till nine o'clock. Yeah. Yeah. At some point, we have to let them get up and go to the bathroom. We do. And take your phone number off the internet. That's also true. All right. Let's do this. Let me pray for us. Thank you for asking the questions. Maybe what I'll do, like I said, is I'll answer these eight more questions this week. I'll do it on. Instagram Live or whatever, and uh, that way if your question didn't get answered, hopefully it, it will get answered. Um, but let's pray. God, we thank you for your scripture, and we thank you for your truth, and we thank you that your Bible that you've given us has answers. We thank you that you are a God of answers, that you are the God of truth, that uh, there is no question that is going to defeat you, that is going to undermine you, that is going to um, cause us to, to all of a sudden not be anchored in our faith in you anymore. And Lord, we're so thankful for that. Pray that, uh, that these students who have these questions would continue to ask them and seek the answers and that they would continue to find that you are reliable and faithful and a God who is worthy of our confidence and our trust. Uh, Lord, we are uh, so mindful that, that this is a, a difficult world to be a believer in. 
but for those students especially who are asking the questions that are just really wrestling with their relationship with you and and whether it be doubt or the outworking of their relationship with you or whatever it may be, contentment, all of these things. God, I just pray that you would bring them comfort and that you would um, show them in, in the scriptures and in your word that you are um, a God who loves them and cares about them and that you have given them uh, truth to be had and applied and worked out in their lives. And I pray that you would be gracious to allow them to do that, God. Uh, Lord, we're thankful for this group. I'm thankful for the, each and every one of these students who are here. And we praise you and give you glory for all these things.